This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome back to the MLB.com StackCast podcast. I'm your host, Mike Petriello, joined here by MLB.com National Editor Matt Myers. And Matt, we are waiting for the hot stove to get going. We did actually have a trade a couple minutes ago, which we'll talk about involving a real, actual Major League player and former All-Star Brad Boxberger. So we'll talk about that in a second. I think we're going to talk a little bit about Giancarlo Stanton and what potential trades might do to his home run totals. We can do a little bit of the same for Mike Moustakas, for Hosmer, for J.D. Martinez. And then uh, we had an interesting piece on our site by Andrew Simon about some interesting StatCast stuff from first-year pitchers. So we've got a lot to talk about. Where do you want to start? Giancarlo Stanton? He seems like the topic of the day. Let's, him let's or Otani, yeah, I guess, I could, right? uh, We could probably fill a podcast just talking about Stanton. Um, I've got thoughts. Okay. What's your first thought? Um, well, let's, well you, you did a really cool piece with some really um, fantastic visuals sort of showing what Stanton's fly balls would look like in different ballparks. Sort of saying, okay, well, if he gets traded to the Red Sox, what does that do to his home run total? You know, Cardinals, Giants, Dodgers, et cetera. So why don't you take us through that, and then we can kind of get through some of the fits and some of the other news that, that's kind of – or, or rumor buzz that's coming out about Stanton and uh, his trade situation. Yeah, I, I feel like people, maybe the Red Sox have sort of fallen off a little bit as a suitor, but they have been in the rumors for quite some time. And I feel like people think of the way Stanton hits, and they think, well, that fence in left field is not that far away. He's going to hit 75 home runs in that park. And I thought about that for a little bit, and I realized that I realized two things. One is I don't think that's true, partially because he hits a lot of these low lasers, right? He doesn't hit these giant towering fly balls. Um, and that's actually backed up. There were 74 hitters who hit at least 25 home runs this year. His average launch angle on those home runs of 26 degrees was tied for the third lowest. So that's true. But I also thought about for years, whenever we've tried to look at like where batted balls might look like in different parks, it's kind of like a top-down 2D thing. You look at the dots, basically. You look at the spray chart. And that's a good start, but also we know that walls matter. The, you know, the green monster is 37 feet tall. Uh, the the left field wall or the left field foul pole wall in Dodger Stadium, for example, is four feet tall. This matters a lot, and so this is what we were, were trying to do with the pieces. Instead of just looking at the landing spots, look at the actual trajectory. Because what you'd find are some of these low lasers that were home runs in Miami would have most likely hit off the wall in Boston, uh, but vice versa. I found some interesting, just like completely run-of-the-mill flyouts that you would never think about in Miami that were just outs, but were hit so high, they almost certainly would be home runs in Boston. I love the fact that the parks are so different here. Yeah, I mean, the the funny thing with Stan is, like, he hits the ball so hard that a lot of these would become singles. Right. Like, he'd be be trading home runs for singles at Fedway. So we looked at some of these parks, and we'll talk about them in a second, but I found it interesting that there there was less of an impact than I thought. And I think part of that is because he hits the ball so far that it almost doesn't matter for him. So we looked at... Uh, 455 hitters who had at least 25 fly balls or line drives, so air balls, his average distance on those balls, 318 feet, was third. So everything he hits is far. And that, to some extent, means it doesn't really matter. Maybe, obviously, if we talk about cores, then he gets more distance. That's a whole other thing entirely. Um, But, for example, if we were to take his batted balls that he hit at home this year in Miami of at least 300 feet, so, you know, potential home runs, 
and we just look at what those would have looked like in Fenway, he might actually lose five home runs and then gain two back. And what I mean by that is he might lose three low-line drives that were home runs in Miami to wall balls, and he might actually lose two to right field. And I found that interesting because the way that the parks overlay, there's actually a little bit deeper part of, of Fenway in right field. And to be clear, you're only looking at fly balls he at home, right? For this, at home. For this only exercise. at home. Because, okay. like, what's the, you know, he's going to be on the road half the time anyway. Yeah. So I think he had 55 home batted balls of at least 300 feet. And that's what we looked at. Uh, so he would maybe gain, lose as many as five home runs there and then gain two back because he hit two high fly balls that probably carry over the monster. Yeah, if, if you read the piece, there's one that that he would have gained that really stands out because it's basically this, this really high fly ball he hit to the warning track in the left field corner in Marlins Park. And it's against the Mets and Cespedes gets back and he catches it like easily. And, you know, you don't think twice about it. You but never Fenway think Park, about it again. In Fenway Park, it probably, it's like way into the monster seats, possibly over the monster. And you're like, oh my goodness, what a majestic home run. And that's like the exact kind of thing when people, you know, we, we deal with this all the time, when people sort of become skeptical of certain home, home run distances, that the context of the ballpark matters so, so much. And Fenway, obviously an extreme example, but basically there are a lot of home runs at Fenway Park that would just be deep fly balls. And home runs that look like majestic like blasts at Fenway Park that would be outs at, 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 at other parks. And this is like a perfect example. So it's worth finding the piece just to watch that highlight because it's like as routine a fly ball as you it was, get. It was my favorite thing. Because like, as you said, that would put runs on the board and you never thought about it during that game. Uh, and we talked about that topic a lot this postseason when it came to the left field fences in, in Houston. For sure. We had a lot of those short fly ball fences. Uh, another team that is obviously very hot on this trail is San Francisco. And I will point out that <clears throat> we just transposed the actual trajectories. We didn't account for wind or environment yet, although we do have plans to do so. And in San Francisco, this is interesting. He would probably lose three home runs to what they call triples alley in right center field, 421 feet away and 15 feet high. That's, that's unreal that that fence is out there. I mean, that is a blast. <clears throat> He'd probably lose three of those, uh, but he would probably gain two back in left field because left field is 15 feet closer. The fence is three feet shorter. But really, we're talking about differences of one or two, right? We're not talking about all of a sudden he's a 380 hitter with 75 home runs. I feel like Stanton is going to be Stanton, right? Really, no matter where he yeah, is. And, his, and as we've also discussed in a recent podcast, his home run total is almost certainly going to go down because it's hard to hit 59 home runs. Right. Uh, we looked at, at St. Louis. Obviously, that's a team that's very much after him. I didn't really even think about this until I looked at the graphic overlays. The fences in St. Louis and the fences in Miami are pretty close to identical. So it, maybe he'd lose one there in right field, but not much of a difference. Uh, Dodger Stadium, kind of the same thing. He, he'd gain maybe one to three home runs to left field, which is a little little shallower. Maybe lose one to right. But really, we're talking about you know plus two, minus three. And none of this is going to be... You know, excluding Colorado, which I've never wanted anything more than for him to be traded to Colorado. It actually makes sense from a baseball point of view. Different topic entirely. Uh, I, I just don't think anywhere he's likely to end up is going to substantially make him a different hitter. Yeah, no. Now it's just a matter of kind of uh, where he's going to go because it the it certainly seems like the uh, the Marlins are doing everything in their power to trade him, and it, and it's also pretty clear the Giants the Giants seem to be the most aggressive, right? We um, there was a. Um, there was a report last week, um, I forget who it was, uh, Craig Mish, I guess Craig Mish from SiriusXM, who said that there, there was a framework in place where the Giants would send uh, Tyler Beatty, Joe Panic, and another prospect whose last name is Shaw, whose first name escapes me, um, to the Marlins for, it's the number two and three prospects per MLB pipeline, and then to the Marlins for Stan and D. Gordon. So that was what was that was the framework that was discussed last week. Now 
uh, MLB.com's John Paul Morosi had a story last night that um, that uh, basically said that what he heard from good sources was that that's, that framework is generally right, but the proposal that the was more accurate was those players for Stanton alone, as long as the Giants were willing to take on at least like two hundred fifty million or so of the two ninety five million remaining on Stanton's contract. I mean, if I'm the Giants, you know, I can't speak for their ownership and how much salary they're willing to uh, take on. I do that because as long as like I have, I basically have a weak farm system anyway, and I have Bumgarner and Posey in their prime, so it's like might as well roll the dice with and see what we can do. But I don't necessarily think it really puts. Staying in a much better position. I, yeah, I think you're right because they are in a tough spot. They're not going to rebuild with those guys. And if they got Stanton, it makes them a better team. I don't know that it makes them better than the Dodgers or maybe better than the Diamondbacks. It's still, it doesn't make them an instant playoff team. No, I mean, it's, it's, they're, they're relying on a big bounce back from Cueto. They're relying on, you know, they would still probably have to go out and figure out, go get a really good center fielder because their outfield defense. Gerard Dyson, yeah. perfect fit there. <laughs> they, you know, they as we've talked about, Denard Span being a huge liability for them in center and in really hurting Jeff Samarja's uh, overall stat line. But, you, you know, you already have Pence, so I guess Stanton plays left? or No, I think you, I think Stanton will play right. And Pence you, goes left? Well, I think you get, like, Dyson or somebody in center, and then you platoon spend and Pence in left, which isn't ideal for them, but neither one of those guys probably plays 162 games anyway. Um, fair point. <laughs> uh, but, you know, so, yeah, they become a better team. You assume you get a full healthy – you have to assume you get a full healthy season from – from Madison Bumgarner, and you, you know you're definitely certainly that suddenly puts you in the conversation for the wild card. But the Dodgers are just, I mean, that's where you see the Dodgers depth come in when like compared to these other teams, where it's like basically it's like best case scenario, the Giants have all these guys and they're all perfectly healthy, and maybe they compete for a playoff spot. Like they have no depth. It's a tough spot to be in. But anyway, um, <clears throat> not just because I wrote it, I do encourage you to check out the piece because uh, one of our designers, Andy, we worked with, made some really cool visuals. And it's, inter- it's an interesting use of StatCast on this end because it was the 3D trajectory, which we've never really been able to do before. Yeah, something we're hoping to do more of as, te- as players um, change teams because there are a lot of other interesting guys that fit this. Well, I'm glad you brought this- that up because when I, I published the piece, the inevitable uh, feedback was, this is cool. What about this guy? What about that guy? What about Hosmer? And that was kind of a prototype. We don't have like an interactive tool ready, although I hope we will at some point soon. But it doesn't mean we can't talk about some of these guys. And we noticed something interesting uh, when starting to think about, you know, what sort of impact would we see from Hosmer, from Martinez, from Moustakas and other parks? Because if you look at, let's say, the Royals, right? In Kansas City, that park is enormous. It's basically Coors Field without the boost of the altitude. So I think it's fair to say, okay, these guys will go to another park and maybe they'll, they'll get some more uh, love just because of how big that park is. Maybe that's true, but when it comes to Hosmer specifically, I was I was kind of surprised to see he. I mean, we all know he's a ground ball hitter. All right, that's his biggest flaw. He just doesn't put the ball in the air. But when we looked at all the guys who did, uh, you know, go opposite field, he and JD Martinez were both in the top five of production going to the opposite field, which is interesting. You think of these guys as like crushing the ball to their pull field. That's what Mustakas is more yeah. than anything. Uh, but if we looked, we have two hundred and forty-seven guys hit fifty balls to the opposite field. And the number one guy in terms of production, in terms of weighted on base average, J.D. Martinez. Uh, number two is Aaron Judge. That makes sense. Jose Martinez, uh, which is actually pretty interesting. It's the Cardinals' Jose Martinez, I believe. Yep. And uh, Stanton, number four, and Hosmer, number five. So it's interesting because what are we talking about with Hosmer? Everybody thinks he's going to the Red Sox, right? That's the number one spot for him. But he's, he's not the kind of guy who's going to take advantage of the pesky pole. Does this mean we see a lot of fly balls over the monster? Off the monster? I feel like I, I, off the monster, but yeah. like you know, suddenly, suddenly you just start thinking, okay, well maybe we have like a you know a new uh, 
Wade Boggs type of guy who's just going to start flicking uh, flicking fly balls off the monster from the from the le- from the left side of the plate. It actually it sort of starts to make Hosmer feel a lot more interesting uh, for the Red Sox because you know one thing that jumps out to me is because we also looked at expe- expected weight on base to sort of see if like the the quality of contact matches the production that they're seeing. And for Hosmer, there's a pretty big gap, right? His his weight on base, the opposite field on these better balls was six twelve. Of course, these are balls in play only, so obviously it's going to be a little higher than than, than normal. Uh, but the expected weight on base was four fifty six. That's a pretty big gap. But if you put him in a park that is suited to op- to, to balls hit the left field, you know, then almost doesn't the the expected doesn't necessarily need to match because you're sort of be able to take advantage of your environment. Like for example, Aaron Judge, his weight on base to the opposite field is seven oh seven. Expected weight on base six thirty eight. Well. A lot of that's him just hitting fly balls to right field that go over the, the short porch in Yankee Stadium, so he's taking advantage of his environment. So, like, it doesn't really matter as much that the, that the expected matches up to the actual. Yeah, I think that's fair. Hosmer had uh, 12 opposite field home runs. That was tied for the fourth most. And he was in the bottom five of the lowest percentage of fly balls and line drives, so air balls, that were pulled. And the, the other names here are not exactly the same kind of player. DJ LeMayhew, Manny Margot, Austin Romine, you know, David Freeze. It's not the kind of players you expect when you're thinking about a slugging first baseman, right? Yeah, D.J. Leahy, the guy who, who's so opposite field heavy, the teams now basically don't play anyone in left field right. when he's up. Right, <laughs> And I think the other thing about Hosmer is he does hit the ball hard. If you look at his, his exit velocity numbers, they're pretty good. But he also has, I believe, a top five or bottom five, depending on how you want to look at it, ground ball rate. Like, he hits a ton of ground balls. And so I think a lot of people look at him and say he's got the skill to hit the ball hard. And we've seen... J.D. Martinez and Justin Turner and all these guys talk about elevating. Maybe Hosmer's a guy who can do that. And I don't know that he can't, but I have a hard time seeing him being the kind of guy who would dedicate himself to that. Because when I look at these other guys, like J.D. Martinez uh, had been cut. He was not on a team, right? Justin Turner was non-tendered. Daniel Murphy was was a decent player, but he wasn't a star. You know, Josh Donaldson turned himself into a star. I don't know that you're going to see a guy sign, you know, $150 million or whatever he's going to be getting and say, now I need to, to tear everything down and start over. It just well, seems unlikely, At least right? you'd have job security at that point. You don't have to worry about... <laughs> you, I mean, you would, but I feel like there's a little less incentive. You're like, hey, yeah. I'm doing something right. Yeah, for sure. I mean, the um, even like even like Ryan Zimmerman, who had been a star, did it, but he did it when his like career had taken a huge downturn. You know, it wasn't like uh, he was doing this when he was a... Uh, perennial all-star. You know, J.D. Martinez is interesting to me in this in this conversation as well because he get, also gets talked about as a Red Sox rumor, but, like, he's getting a lot of production to right center field, which is not where you want to be if you're on the Red Sox. Well, it's the Red Sox or the Giants, right? Yeah. These are the two teams that could use an outfield power bat. And when I think of the two ballparks, maybe three with Detroit, right, that I would not want to be uh, a right-handed hitter with, like, right center field power... I'm thinking of Boston and I'm thinking of San Francisco. Although I guess you know, for JD Martinez, he could say, "Well, I succeeded in Detroit, so don't 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 worry about me." Fair enough. Yeah, and and that's an important reminder. I know he went to Arizona and he went on this ridiculous tear, and people started paying attention to him. He didn't just get good with Arizona. He's been one of the best hitters in baseball for like four years he, now. He led the majors in barrels in 2015. That's right. And even even this year, uh, 4.23 expected weighted on base, tied with Mike Trout behind Aaron Judge and Joey Votto. So he is not a product of Arizona. Uh, but he is a surprising guy who, you know, opposite field, 19 of his home runs were to opposite field. That's most in, in Major League Baseball. So that's interesting. So yeah. I, I don't I don't know how his ballpark's going to play out, but I do see some of these parks as maybe not being the best fit for him. He probably should just go back to Arizona, I would think. Uh, Mistakis is another interesting name because he's the opposite of these guys going opposite field. He had 33 home runs to his pull field. That's the most in Major League Baseball. So he is a dead, dead pull hitter. And, you know, Kansas City's not exactly a, a great park for that. But it's interesting because... You know, not that many players hit as many fly balls and line drives to their pull side 
as he does. Uh, 37% of his air balls were to the pull field, but since he does it so often, he ranked 11th in total air balls to the pull field. So that has to come into play somewhat about you know what what park makes sense for him. Yeah, you know he he you know he somewhat famously set the Royals record for uh, franchise record for home runs with 30, I guess thirty eight breaking the pour one out for Steve Balboni thirty six home 36. runs in, in nineteen eighty five I believe that had record it stood for like three decades yeah um, so you know it's it's a, a quote unquote career year at least to this point for Mustakis and he's someone that you know I've never been a huge fan of I've just always kind of a low OBP guy. He's, you know, from a kind of a scouting perspective, he doesn't have a great quote-unquote body. He just doesn't seem like the kind of guy that's going to age, to me, that's going to age that well. But, like, he definitely is a guy who's could be particularly valuable in certain ballparks, particularly since we saw, and um, Travis Sawchick uh, wrote a, a smart piece about this on Fangraphs, um, we looked at the, the, the average fly ball distance for Mustakas because that's he's actually improving the, the, his rate of hitting the ball in the air and the distance it's traveling. So, you know, in the first half of 2015... Um, his average fly ball distance was 308. Second half, it was 317. He missed most of 2016, but it was 332 in that short in that short span. And then this year, it was 326. So his average fly ball distance was 326 feet. So we've seen an increase in his average fly ball distance. You know, 326 feet in Yankee Stadium to right field is like a home run half the time. And uh, just to clarify something that's probably confusing, I did say earlier that Giancarlo Stanton had 318 feet in that right tiley, uh, but I believe here for Mustakas, we're just looking at fly balls, and earlier I was looking at fly balls and line drives, so air fair, balls. Fair, fair distinction. Um, and you did, sort of did a piece kind of going down all the potential fits for It's for weird, right? I mean, there's a, there's a lot of superstars at third base right now. You know, like Bryant and Arenado and Turner, and there's, there's a lot of teams who just don't need a third baseman. They're very well set there. And, you know, what's in his favor is that Todd Frazier is probably the only other, you know, reasonable third base option that's out there. So you look at some of the fits and, you know, the, the Giants could badly use a third baseman, but I can't imagine them doing this if they actually go get Stanton, too. Yeah. Right. Like, you know, the Pirates, they could use a third baseman. Are they going to spend on this? Probably not. You know, the Cardinals could, but they like Jed Jericho. I, I think the most realistic fits, if not back home in Kansas City, are, you know, the Yankees or the Mets, or the Angels. The Angels, I think, make most sense. And I don't like to focus too much on the fact that he's a hometown boy. Everybody loves to put the guys back where they came from. He's a Southern California kid. But uh, the Angels could certainly use another bat in that lineup. Yeah, I mean, it's the Angels are far and away like, the, best, the best fit for, for a variety of reasons. They don't – they've actually had – I mean, yes, they just extended Justin Upton, but they've had some, some uh, big payroll guys come off the books. Um, you know, well, who am I – Jared Weaver, Josh Hamilton, who they finally stopped paying, C.J. Wilson, Houston Street. So it's like they've you know, certainly have, have created a little more payroll, payroll flexibility. They, their third-base production last year was terrible. Um, and Moustakis would, wouldn't be a bad fit. It's not like a, a particularly like extremely friendly park to left-handed pull hitters, but it's, it's not going to crush them. It's an upgrade, and, yeah. they, and they need upgrades right yeah. now. Yeah, I mean, I, I could, the thing with Moustakis is, you know, we're, we're, everyone's sort of – complaining about how slow the hot stove is and Jeff Passon wrote about this the other day basically just saying like GMs are kind of smarter and they've realized that they can wait out the market and the closer it gets to spring training the more desperate guys are to sign and it just they just generally cost less I, yeah and that that piece you referenced by Jeff Passon was good because he said it wasn't really Stanton and Otani holding up the market and I, I agree with that fully because Otani doesn't hold up anything he's not going to cost you that much if you're the lucky team that gets him you easily make room for him yeah. Stanton holds up things for like two or three teams the Giants and the Cardinals maybe and the Marlins most teams aren't getting Stanton they don't they don't need to wait for that but you know but then you look you look at last offseason good example and they're not they're not complete 
completely analogous because they play different positions. But like you know, early in the off season, the Mets were aggressive about trying to re-sign Cespedes. He got four for one ten, which is you know his market value. That's fine, but like the Indians sort of waited out that first base DH market, and they got Encarnacion for what three for sixty. Some team's going to do that with Carlos Santana, and they're going to feel pretty good about yeah, it. Yeah, so it's, I mean, I could see that happening with you know, like there's not that many teams that want a third baseman. So if I'm the Angels, it's like, well, who? Who's really, you know, being against me for Moustakis? So, like, you could wait and then just... I could see the Phillies jumping in on this. Or the Braves, right? The, the Phillies, are, the Phillies <laughs> are fascinating because they have one player... I mean, yes, tomorrow's the tender deadline, so this is going to change, and they're obviously going to be like... They have one player who is currently under contract for this season, Odubel Herrera. Like, they have so much payroll flexibility like and they're i mean in the past they've been a team that has, has carried a big payroll in their quote unquote glory their glory years with Howard and Rollins and Cliff Lee and such like they carried a you know a top you know five or six payroll so like they clearly are, have the wherewithal to do that and you kind of feel like and their, their farm system is not that is really not that great right now but they have a lot of good like young talent on their team like i still believe Herrera is an asset Hoskins really interesting. Aaron Nola really interesting. J.P. Crawford still looks looks like he'd be a player. Nick Williams, Kingery's coming up. Kingery, Altair, Altair. Like this team, like if they, you know, like with a couple moves, could suddenly be a competitive team this year and the next year. You know, they're going to be in on one of the big free agents next year, and almost certainly going to get one of them simply by the virtue they're going to have the, probably the most money to spend. Manny Machado, 2018 Phillies uh, third baseman. Maybe. But anyway, so yeah, the Phillies would be a, to me would be a dark horse for uh, for Musakas as well. Well, we are we're all waiting for these guys to sign somewhere, and uh, I, I can't wait for them to do so because then we'll have a lot more to talk about. But I thought this was an interesting piece that our friend Andrew Simon wrote on MLB.com recently. He looked at some of the rookie pitchers from this past season and looked at what made them interesting from a, a Statcast perspective. And what's cool about this is these are not really household names. I think that's definitely true. But that's sort of the point, right? Like, we want to be able to look past these guys who have these huge names and, and finish second in the rookie of the year to find something interesting, some interesting skill about them that might give you hope that they could be useful pieces to these teams going forward for next year. Yeah, Andrew actually did two pieces. He did one on hitters, or position players, and one on pitchers. The position players, and he was only looking at guys who debuted in 2017, so we didn't look at Aaron Judge because he debuted the year before. We're guys we sort of talked about a lot who had a little more profile, you know, Brett Phillips throwing arm, you know, Bradley Zimmer speed, that sort of thing. The pitcher's list was like really pretty, like random. Like the, the people that, you know, non hardcore fans have, are, are not familiar with. And that's what was really interesting. There was three that, 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 that really jumped out to me. One of them was actually a pretty big pro- prospect um, Brandon Woodruff of the Brewers. Um, MLB Pipeline has him ranked as number four in Milwaukee system and number 80th uh, overall. He still has his prospect status, even though he debuted this year. He had a, it made eight starts. They were pretty uneven, though he did have one start against a legitimate Nationals lineup. I looked at the box score to make sure it wasn't just some, like, September like, crazy. We just clinched. Like, yeah, yeah, no, it was, it was a legitimate lineup um, against the Nats. September 2nd against Max Scherzer, actually. Seven innings, eight strikeouts, two hits, one walk, one run allowed. And over the course of, of the month, Woodruff was really, really good at limiting hard contact. Um, his average exit velocity allowed of 82.7 miles per hour was the second lowest among all starters who produced at least 100 batted balls. And his barrel, barrel rate, barrels being like, you know, the optimal battered ball, um, of 3% ranked fourth in that same group. So this is a guy that was re- showed a real knack for limiting hard contact. Now, he's got, he's got a little bit of a herky-jerky delivery. So well, I wonder if that helps, right, yeah, in terms of deception. Yeah, it does. It, it's, it's, it hurts his command. His off-speed stuff is a little bit a little bit out there, but it could be helping his deception of getting weak contact. 
his strikeout rate was nothing spectacular. But this, you know, it's immediately it's like, okay, well, the Brewers, you know, maybe they have, they have, maybe they're onto something here. Maybe they're not, but maybe they are. Yeah. Uh, our second name, and I'm only half sure I'm going to pronounce this right, is uh, Alan Busenitz. Right? Is that what we think maybe it is? Mm-hmm. He's, a, he's a reliever for the Twins. And if you don't know him, you know, most people probably wouldn't. He's a 25th round pick in 2013 who turned 27 in August. But he was actually pretty good. I remember they traded Brandon Kinsler uh, when they thought they weren't going to be in the race. Then they got back in the race. And he was a big part of why that bullpen was good. Uh, a 199 ERA, if you like surface level stats, that's certainly a shiny one across 31 and two thirds innings. But if you look at his fastball, he's definitely one of those high velocity, high spin rate guys. Uh, 95.7 miles an hour. And the fastball is really good. 2488 RPM on the, the fastball in terms of spin rate, almost 2500. That's definitely above average. And what's interesting is if you look at the combination of those two things, there were 346 guys who threw at least 254 seamers this year. Only four topped him in both velocity and spin rate. And we know that those can go hand in hand. And one of those guys is Raldis Chabin. So I'm certainly not saying he's going to be the next Raldis Chabin, but right away, that's interesting. Yeah, high velo, high spin rate. You know, he's up near 2500 RPM, which is sort of the. Um the, the the gold standard for uh, for, uh, for four seam spin rate and like high, that's a good combination that's a that's a place you want to be those two those two things usually usually mean a lot of missed bats a lot of pop ups which is a recipe for success yeah he was in that weird trade from uh, 2016 he was with the Angels actually and he was traded with Hector Santiago to the Twins for Alex Meyer and Ricky Nolasco and I actually liked that deal for the Angels at the time because I liked Alex Meyer he's like six ten he can never throw strikes but you know he's a guy you, you think you could mold into something. I didn't really think much of either Nolasco or Santiago. I'd never heard of this guy, Alan Busenitz. And he might be the most valuable player from that deal now. Yeah. Uh, t- short twins aside, the twins to me, um, we already talked about them enough on the show because of Buxton and Sano and Berrios, but they're a real factor in the Shohei Otani race because they they're one of the three teams that has more than $3 million in bonus money. And Thad Levine, their GM, has extensive experience because uh, he's with the Rangers who are always very active uh, in the Japanese market. So I'm very intrigued. If the, if the Twins get Otani, uh, I am all in on the Twins would, for 2018. It would make me happy if he goes somewhere like that. I think yeah. that'd, be, that'd be fun to watch. Uh, the last guy we want to talk about is the Luis, that's with a Z, Luis Gohara, a left-handed pitcher from the Braves who he came up late in the year and was actually really interesting. Struck out 31 over 29 in a third innings, only made five September starts. But listen to this. Threw the ball 100 miles an hour, and I know that doesn't mean what it used to, but it's still really impressive. And for a left-hander, there are not many left- right. left-handed starting pitchers who throw 100 miles an hour. It's basically James Paxton and him. Even just uh, among all pitchers, I think it's like Felipe Rivero and Chapman might have been the only other two guys off the top of my head. Uh, he threw the four fastest pitchers by a lefty starter all year. Remember, he did not come up until September. And he threw the four fastest pitches by a lefty starter all year, as well as 17 of the 29 such pitches that came in at 98.7 miles an hour or harder. So right away, you know this guy's got an arm, right? That's There's no question about that. Yeah, I'll, I'll admit before reading Andrew's piece, I knew nothing about Luis Gohara, and now I am fascinated he's the by one of the, He's the one of these three guys that I knew the most about, so this is good. It's educational for everybody. I mean, he's, he's only 21 years old. Um, he, the, the, the Mariners got him. I mean, the Braves got him in like kind of a minor trade with the Mariners. I'm sort of like, what, what happened here? Like it, was, it, was, it, was a, it was a disjointed three-way trade. Like it, the, the trade technically was he was traded by the Mariners with a prospect for Malik Smith, who is an outfielder, and Shea Simmons, but it was really part of like the next day, part of a three-way trade with oh, yeah. the Drew Smiley deal going to, to my, uh, Seattle. Uh, but listen, I mean, I, charitably, he does not. He's more of the Bartolo Colon body type, I <laughs> guess you would say. Uh, and the, 
That doesn't mean he can't be successful. Bartolo's still going. And, and when Bartolo came up, he was not really that fit and throwing 100 miles an hour. That's so. exactly right. <laughs> uh, and not from the left side yeah. either, by the way. So, I mean, if you look at this, there are 62 lefty starters who threw at least 100 four-seam fastballs, and his average of 96.4 was the highest by nearly one full mile an hour. And he's only 21 years old. So we, we know the Braves have a ton of pitching prospects, and he might be the most interesting one of all to me. I, like, I'm more interested in him than, than uh, you know, Fulton Evich or any of these other guys. Yeah, if I, if I had to start making a list of players I'm most excited to watch in 2018, he now, he now, uh, he now cracks the list just because I did not watch him at all, and now I'm like, i got to see this guy. All right, Luis Gohara. And finally, there was a trade made. Can you believe it? I know like this, the hot stove has not been hot, but there was an actual Major League Baseball trade made uh, earlier this afternoon. The Tampa Bay Rays sent reliever Brad Boxberger to Arizona for a minor league prospect. It seems like this was probably a trade because he was going to get non-tendered tomorrow, I would assume, just based on the timing of it. Uh, Brad Boxberger was once a very good pitcher. He's only 29 years old, but he's missed a lot of time in the last two years with a back injury, abdominal surgery. Got into 30 games this most recent season for Tampa Bay. Uh, but he was really good uh, for a while in 2014, 2015. 303 ERA, 178 strikeouts, and 127 and two-thirds innings. Made the all-star team in 2015. So, you know, obviously the, the prospect is something, but this seems like a pretty decent pickup for an Arizona team that we knew needed bullpen help. Yeah, and his his um, his uh, his stat cast metrics were actually pretty good. His um, He missed the first half of the year with, uh, with a back injury, and then his expected uh, weight on base was 258. Um, and that's that's well above average. That's that's so the, the league average is about uh, I think three fifteen or so. So two fifty eight is very very good. And then we and we know before Statcast, like in the twenty fourteen season, he was very good. So this is a guy we know as talent. Yeah, I mean even this year was that ranked thirty first out of two hundred and fifty four relievers who faced at least hundred batters. So I mean he made one point six million this year. He's got two more years left of arbitration. I mean the the the, the, the prospect that came back was you know uh, uh, number fourteen on Arizona's. Uh, Prospect ranking on MLB Pipeline, Curtis Taylor from the University of British Columbia, um, who had a decent year at uh, Class A Kane County, but he also got hurt. I, I, I like it for the D-backs. I mean, he's he's at two years of arbitration. He's not gonna he's gonna make what you know two, between two and three million this year, like at most, because he doesn't he's missed a lot of time. He hasn't put up big numbers, and he has closing experience. And we know that Rodney is a free agent there, and they they obviously need more arms. Yeah, their bullpen was their bullpen was definitely a, a an issue for them. So, so I, I like it. I, I like it for Arizona. And, uh, you know, obviously Tampa was trying to clear some payroll space, I think. So anyway, that's our show for this week. And when we speak next week, I promise you somebody will have signed, right? Somebody's going to sign for the winter meetings or, or you think everybody's going to take it there? I mean, someone will sign. Sure. So, someone will sign. I, I think I think uh, we might start seeing there seems to be getting a little more heat around guys like Mike Miner, Brian Shaw. I might see some relievers. Huge fan of Mike Miner. High spin rate Mike Miner. I think we've talked about him on the show before. Anyway, that's our show for this week. This is the MLB.com StackCast podcast. Thanks for listening. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend 
or do something a little more epic and conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.